Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to 20 Questions With. As well as having an extremely high profile political career, our guest today firmly established himself as a literary force with the publication of his first novel, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, way back in 1975. Now, some 35 years on, he continues to defy his critics and delight his fans. His most recent collection of short stories, and thereby hangs a tale, is now available in paperback. So, question number one... What's your name? Jeffrey Archer. And welcome. Thank you, Jeffrey. Rob. Thank Very you. nice to have you here. Uh, so question number two, it sounds straightforward, but is it? What do you do? Well, my life at the moment is pretty well all writing. My new book, uh, Mightier Than the Sword, comes out a week today. And um, so I suppose I would say 75% of my life is writing. My hobby and my love as well as writing, is being a charity auctioneer. I get terrific fun. That's my fun hobby. And, of course, I love the theatre uh, and I love sport. And what does it say on your passport? What, what's, what's your profession on the passport there? Uh, it just says Member of the House of Lords, I think, because it's an old passport. Right. I mean, you have them for 10 years. Uh, I still am a Member of the House of Lords, but I, I, think, I think actually under profession it says author. And politician, did it say it sometime? Uh, yes, and I still have a fascination by it. And I'd go as far as saying I think the next election will be the most incredible in my lifetime. Uh, whereas when I worked with Margaret Thatcher and John Major, I was actually able to sit with them privately and say, uh, Prime Minister, I think you'll win by 120. Prime Minister, I think you'll win by 30. Prime Minister, I think you'll lose by 150. I haven't got a blooming clue what's going to happen in the next election. And if I was advising the Prime Minister, because I was in charge of the marginal seats, if I was advising the Prime Minister, I wouldn't have a blooming clue. It's going to be fascinating, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's going to... It's been one of those... You'll see seats you thought would go one way, they go the other. It's, it's, it's 400 by-elections are going on. I must ask you about Thatcher later on, but uh, let's go back to question three now. Where did you grow up, Geoffrey? In the Western Supermare in Somerset. I'm a West Country boy. That's where I come from, my dear. That's why I support Somerset Cricket Club and Bristol Rovers. Uh, so that's where I was brought up uh, with a wonderful... My father died when I was young with a wonderful mother who uh, went out and did four jobs, which, of course, I didn't know at that age, was doing four jobs to make sure I could stay at the little school I was at, devoted everything, God bless her, made it possible for me to get semi-educated because she felt that was the most important thing of all and uh, I'm grateful for that the rest of my life. Uh, so Western Supermare in the West Country of England. Siblings? No, um, an only child brought up with my mother and father in a tiny flat uh, in South Road, Western Supermare. Happy childhood? Very. Uh, I thought I could conquer the world. And uh, did? At, at, <laughs> at three, I wanted to be four. At four, I wanted to be prime minister and... Nothing was going to stop me, except uh, the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And school? What about school? You went to Wellington. I went right? to a little school in Somerset called Wellington, which has suddenly become a very good academic establishment. It wasn't in my day. It's suddenly become a, 
really rather impressive uh, academic establishment. A very nice school. I, I went back and gave away the prizes there a few years back. And it's a it's a nice middle class school, and that's what it was then, and that's what it is now. And is that where the writing bug hit you? Well, I had an English master called Alan Quilter, who certainly gave me my love of theatre, certainly gave me my love of Shakespeare, and certainly gave my love of reading and words. And indeed, when he went on to be headmaster uh, of Wells Cathedral School, and I went and spoke for him as well, and I and I dedicated one of the books to him. So there isn't any doubt that his love of literature and his love of the theatre uh, got through to me in a big way, and I will be grateful to him forever, and, and didn't leave him in any doubt that I was grateful for him. But he was the first to say, there's a very big difference between being a writer and a storyteller. Yes, he gave me the love of all those things, but if you're what the Irish call a shanaki, you're a storyteller. Uh, and by when they say Shanaki, they mean even someone who sits on a street corner and tells a tale. Uh, it's That is a gift. Great, great writers are normally very well educated, very well taught, very well read. Storytellers are born. And he gave you a love of musical theatre as well, by the sound of it. Yes, love of the theatre. Uh, I played in all the school plays and indeed thought about being an actor before leaving school. Um, never thought about being a writer and then went into politics. Acting politics? Quite early. Well, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's what did that cruel person say, whoever it was who said it, that politics is for not very good-looking people who can't get to Hollywood. <laughs> I think that's very cruel, but probably quite accurate. You're listening to 20 Questions with Geoffrey Archer. And his question number four, Geoffrey, what's your most treasured possession? Very awkward to answer that question because is it something that's very very valuable or is it something that just has a sentimental value uh, I did an auction for Ian Botham and he gave me as a gift uh, the the bat he scored the famous century with I raised them a hundred thousand pounds for his amazing leukemia charity because uh, I love auctioneering and he gave me the bat and I gave it back uh, so it was my possession only, I'm afraid, for a couple of weeks. I said, no, I think we ought to auction this. It's too important. I don't think it should be living in my home. And then the late Donald Sindon, the great actor, great thespian, who was, gave Mary the most wonderful Eric Gill, great, great artist and a great, great sculptor. And it was so kind of him. He'd given it to his wife and his wife died. And then he, he rang Mary and said, I'm going to die and I want you to have it. And so we have that, and we're going to leave that to the Eric Gill Museum because we feel we should only have it for our lifetime. We shouldn't have it any longer. So those two possessions, the one my wife has of the Eric Gill and the one I had for 10 minutes, the bat that Ian Botham scored the famous century with, uh, were very special to me, very special. Question number five, difficult one, this. Happiest day of your life? Well, you know, you very kindly, Rob, sent me the questions. And, of course, you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to say the day my first son was born, the day we were married. Funnily enough, Mary and I were on honeymoon in Dublin. We chose to, to do uh, Ireland for our honeymoon. It's such a lovely country. And uh, I got a telegram saying, come home, you've been chosen 
to run for Great Britain. Uh, get back on the <laughs> so, so our honeymoon was properly messed up so that I could run for my country. So I think probably in a way that was a very unusual and exciting day, not only to be with my wife, but to be, uh, to be asked to run for my country. Sport's very important to you, isn't oh, it? Oh, I love it. I, I'm a competitor by nature. I want to be number one in anything I do. Can't do anything about it. Uh, it's no use saying, grow up, Geoffrey. It's too late. Here's question number six to Geoffrey Archer. Um, what are you scared of? I think I'm probably... I'd be physically scared of some a big person with a knife, you know. <laughs> I, yes, I, I'd be scared of that. I'm not scared of much mentally. Um... Because I worked with Margaret Thatcher for 11 years, so I know what tough is, uh, and that didn't frighten me. I enjoyed it, in fact. Uh, but I'd be physically scared of a big human being with no brain who was just <laughs> charging towards you, and I couldn't use my tongue to control him. <laughs> Thatcher, you mentioned there, a remarkable woman. A very, I was very fortunate to meet her once, and I don't think I've met anyone in my life with as much charisma for a relatively small lady. Uh, yes. Massive charisma. Yeah, but a bundle of energy. And what came over was, you're quite right, what came over is this passion for what she was doing and this everybody, you would have been for, for that moment the most important person in her life and you'd have felt it. You'd have felt that strength and it came over all the time. I, She divided opinion. I still have friends who won't have her name mentioned in public and then I still have friends who think she was the greatest prime minister of the last century. Where, you, where are you on her? Well, I had 11 years with her, so I knew her very well, and I had the privilege of running the campaign for the marginal seats for her, and then after she resigned, we went to Japan to do a big tour together, and uh, I w worked with her very closely. And I would say uh, there were, I was never, it was never not thrilling to be with her. Thrilling. And Mary and I used to go and see her towards the end. It was very sad, of course. We used to go and sit with her, and chat about old stories. And uh, very funny, when she get, got cross with me once, I started calling her prime minister again. It, you know, we were having a row about finance, the Russians, how to deal with the Russians, how to handle their financial, to cut off their finance. And we were having a row. And I suddenly, I don't agree with you, prime minister. And she said, well, I'm going to change it. And she didn't realize she wasn't prime minister. And I'd got back in the habit. Yeah. You go 11 years calling someone prime minister. You suddenly announced tomorrow, Rob, you weren't called Rob, you were called Harry. You'd find it very hard for your friends to all be calling you Harry. And so we went 11 years calling her prime minister. So it got very hard to call her Margaret or very hard to not get used to the fact. She was she of a time? Could it? Could she do it again if you know if she was in her prime again? Would she make it? Work I think now? people are born or in their time. I accept that. That's not a bad argument. But I think she was so great that she would have adapted to whatever she was. If she'd been born at the time of Winston Churchill, she'd have played that role. Uh, if she'd been born now, she'd play. She'd play it differently. Of course, she would. She was. She was very able to adapt. She was very good at that. But yes, she was born. She was right for the time. The British yes. people wanted someone like that. In the way the German people wanted Merkel, in the same way they wanted that sort of strong character who will govern and get on with it. Uh, and maybe you don't always agree, but let her get on with it. And stronger than many a man. Oh, very much more. But then I've been brought up with three very strong women. My mother was very strong. My wife is remarkably strong now, chairman, of course, of the 
Science Museum, a terrific job to have, and Margaret Thatcher. So I've been surrounded by powerful and strong women and enjoyed it. I, I actually like it. I've always believed in equality. I've always thought it slightly farcical that we think we're as good as they are, but <laughs> that's <the way> it is. <laughs> so you'll think I'm leading you into question number seven now. Who was your hero? Living or dead? Oh, either, either. Uh, I went to a memorial service yesterday for Sir Tommy McPherson. Sir Tommy won three military crosses behind enemy lines. He escaped from prisoner of war camp three times. He won three quarter de guerres. And Giscard d'Estaing flew over to attend the memorial service. That's how highly he was regarded in France. Scotsman, of course, but how highly he was regarded in France. He won a knighthood. Uh, he then went back after the war to Oxford and got a first-class honours degree uh, in the classics. I mean, this is not a normal man. I knew him for 60 years. When I was a child at Oxford, he was the sort of over-figure in charge. So I knew him for 60 years. I don't think I've met a finer man in my life, ever. And I don't think I'll ever meet a finer man in my life. He was the straightest, honest, straight as an arrow. Uh, you don't get three military crosses unless you're brave beyond common sense. And you don't get a first uh, in the classics unless you're bright. But he was also a lovely, lovely human being, and it was an honour to be at his memorial service yesterday, and uh, I would consider him the man in my lifetime I've most admired. You're listening to 20 Questions with Geoffrey Archer. Um, silly question now, Geoffrey. Number eight, what did you do yesterday? Uh, I had quite a hectic day yesterday because uh, it began with the memorial service uh, for Sir Tommy McPherson, which, of course, one saw so many old friends. What was interesting about who was there was... There were, the, there were the army side, of course I didn't know them from Adam. There was the Scottish side, I didn't know them, but there were the athletic side. So one saw a lot of great old athletes from my era who worshipped uh, and adored him. Uh, and then in the evening, and I went back, uh, Mary spent the afternoon. She had a more interesting day than I did because she came to the memorial service as well. Uh, but then she went on to show Stephen Hawking around the Science Museum. Uh, of course, he knows the Science Museum very well indeed, but she's the new chairman. And the lady had won a prize, and her prize was to go round the Science Museum with Stephen Hawking. So Mary, as chairman, took them round, and she said it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling to be with the great man and to go round the museum she's now has the privilege of being in charge of and show him the new things since he last came and be with this wonderful lady from the United States of America who won the prize to meet him and go round the museum with her. What a great prize that is. And here's number nine, and I know you like your telephone because it's sitting here on the table. Uh, who was the last person you spoke to on the telephone? I spoke to a dear old friend this morning called Henry Toynier because I, uh, I, 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 he's brilliant on London restaurants and where to go. And uh, a friend is flying in from the United States, wants to go to a Japanese restaurant. I don't care for Japanese food that much. So the last person I spoke to was Henry, who I rang up and said, please tell me a Japanese restaurant that's not too expensive. And he wrote, he sent back an immediate email saying, uh, that's not possible, Jeffrey. All Japanese restaurants are expensive, but here's a list. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we must talk about the new book. Uh, and this is part of a, a series of, of books, isn't it? Tell I've me, written tell seven me books this. called, the, well, I haven't written the seven yet. I'm writing seven books called The Clifton Chronicles. The first was Only Time Will Tell, and I've been doing one a year for the last five years. This is number five, Mightier Than the Sword. It's always a very 
oh, tricky time for any author because you're not sure what the critics are going to say. Do you They're, care? Uh, well, I do care, and they've recently been very generous. I've had some very generous critics lately, people saying, you know, he is a storyteller. You should never forget that. No, I am not uh, Nadim Godama. No, I am not Salman Rushdie. But that isn't what I want to be. I want to be an entertainer. And you clearly are. The books have been very successful for very many years. So there you are, very successful author. And then you dive into the world of politics and all that comes with that and the criticism and the yes. hard words. And, and and it's getting worse. When I look at what's happening with David Cameron, Ed Miliband and uh, Clegg, I th I, it's just getting so vicious, so unpleasant. You think... I, and I hate this negative advertising. It's just personal it. now, isn't it? I hate it. Oh, he's not up to the job. He's second rate. I hate it. What about the things they've achieved? What about the things they've done? What about the fact they're willing to give public service? I, I think we live in a very... I hate it. We've got this from America. You're the presidential candidates now. Do nothing except slag off the other side. They don't say why they should be the president. They say why the other person shouldn't be the president. Well, that's... If we're going that way in England, I'm very, very sorry. To be describing uh, Ed Miliband as your worst nightmare and then putting a picture of him uh, next to Salmon saying, and here's an even worse nightmare, I think is actually disgusting. I think uh, Ed Miliband is clearly a highly intelligent man, highly sophisticated man, and dedicated wanting to give service. That also applies to David Cameron because it equally annoys me. When people forget, they say, oh, David Cameron went to Eton. Well, wait a moment. He won a scholarship to Eton and then went to Oxford and got a first-class honours degree. If you get win a scholarship to Eton and you get a first-class honours degree, is that to be a disqualification for going into public life? I hate it, is the answer to the question. We should be praising both men for their achievements, not just knocking them the whole time. Here's question number 10 now to Geoffrey Archer. Have you got any awards? Well, in the Athletics Day, um, you mean ones I keep on the wall and I'm proud of. <laughs> in the Athletics Day, there were a few, thank heavens, because I uh, won the England University Championship. And, and uh, there have been one or two. But yes, I have five book awards. Um, I recently won international author, uh, in Ireland. I went over to Dublin to receive it a few weeks ago. I have three French awards. The French love storytellers. They think Dumas is to be taken seriously and not to be dismissed. Uh, I have no awards in England. I have three in France, one in Germany, uh, one in Ireland, and none in England. And I suspect I never will win one in England. But that's fine. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I have no complaints. So here's question number 11 now to Jeffrey Archer. What is your signature dish? Well, I, I would say I am the world's leading expert on shepherd's pie. 
There is no one who knows better shepherd's pie than I do. I give it at my parties. I love it. People give it to me kindly all over the world. Whenever I arrive, they do me a shepherd's pie. I love shepherd's pie. And being a Western super mare boy, I love fish and chips. We used to have a lovely uh, corner shop. It taught me about... It taught me about industry. There were two fish and chip shops next to each other in Western Supermare. One was called Coffins, which was sold out the entire time. You couldn't get anywhere near the place where you got fish and chips for a bob, 5p. And I was in that queue. The next door, nobody queuing at all. And it taught me about industry. You know, why, why has this shop got a queue and this shop not got a queue? Because the prices were the same. The difference was Coffins gave you the most wonderful fish and chips. Great name as well. Number 12, four people, dead or alive, that you would invite to your dinner party. And I know you used to give fabulous summer parties, didn't you? I love my parties. I would like... Um, Do you still throw them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And Christmas parties, champagne and shepherd's pie parties, yeah. Although I don't drink champagne myself. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who I think is probably uh, the most cosmopolitan person i would like to meet i mean is a there's nothing that man couldn't do john kennedy said of him when dining in the white house with eight nobel prize winners this is the greatest gathering of intellect since thomas jefferson dined alone which i think <laughs> rather he was a polymath in every sense so yes i love love obviously to have met lincoln as well uh, why did the united states produce these two monumental giants when they were not a country of any great significance and now seem unable to produce giants when they're the most important nation on earth fools me a bit uh, I'd like Catherine the Great there because of my love of art and the fact she stole pictures from Britain and for everyone else and her own people criticised her and they've now got uh, something uh, in uh, St. Petersburg, which happens to just be arguably the greatest art gallery on earth, the Hermitage, because of Catherine the Great. Uh, she was evidently very sexy as well, but not unknown for killing her lovers if they got if they became troublesome. But so I'd, I'd, uh, I would uh, very much uh, like to meet her. Of modern heroines, of course, Margaret would be one. But you see, if you're going to have one dinner party, I had the privilege of dining with her, one would want to to meet people. My modern hero, in a way, probably very politically different to me, is Emma Thompson. Uh, I, a human being who can win an Oscar for acting and win an Oscar for writing is no normal person. Uh, I think she must be... Well, I am a huge fan, a huge admirer. And she's going to be at the um, English National Opera at the Coliseum in the very near future, and uh, I'll be first in the queue to see her. Let's have some more music. What are we choosing next, Geoffrey? Well, the next one on the list is an amazing combination. I heard it many years ago when I was in Sydney, visiting Sydney. Uh, two of the greatest artists. These are light artists here. We're not discussing Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. We're discussing genuine entertainment. A combination of Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. It's just so wicked. It's so wicked because they clearly do adore each other. And he's not a bad trumpeter into the bargain. <laughs> 20 questions with Geoffrey Archer. Number 13. You're well-travelled, obviously. If there was one place in the world that you'd recommend I would go to, where would that be? Well, recommend and not gone to myself, I think I felt when I read that question. I feel guilty about not having done China. 
I feel I really ought to before I die, because Mary, Mary and I are discussing where we should go that we haven't done in our lifetime. And China is number one on the list. If I was to recommend to anyone listening to this program where to go, don't die without seeing St. Petersburg. It's a beautiful city. The Winter Palace and the Summer Palace are truly remarkable. In my view, the, the Summer Palace is every bit as beautiful as Versailles. It's, of course, based on Versailles, but it also has a remarkable art gallery. And the Hermitage is arguably the greatest art gallery on earth. My only warning would be that if you love art, I've now done it five times and I still haven't conquered it. Mary and I decided on the last trip, which was a couple of years ago, that we'd only do the Dutch collection within the Hermitage. It's that great a gallery. There is so much to see. But I think to die not having seen St. Petersburg would be a pity. Can I take you back to the writing? Because obviously we have a, we have a new book here, uh, Mightier Than the Sword. What's your regime for writing? Are you very precise? Do you block out a portion of the day or does it go? Do you go with the muse? I think go with the muse is a joke. Uh, I'm a totally disciplined person. So I'll have thought for a year before I sit down. So I know roughly what's coming. But I would rise at 5.30. I work six until eight. I can't do more than two hours The concentration goes after about two hours and 20 minutes, goes, and the hand begins to feel very tired. I was going to ask, is it... Well, I hand write, so it gets very tired indeed. Uh, And then I will go to breakfast and uh, have a bath and a shave and then go back and do 10 until 12. Then I come out and do an hour's walk, have lunch, then another rest, and then back two until four, then another hour's walk and another probably watch a black and white movie, film, and then go and rest again and then do six until eight. Then I have a light supper, uh, probably got a box set. Uh, I went through um, House of Cards this time, saw every episode, the American version, loved it. And uh, uh, then I'll go to bed about 9.30, maybe 10. That regime I've just finished, I got back last week, it took. I did forty-six days, three hundred and fifty hours, and walked two hundred and fifty miles. <laughs> so yes, it is discipline, but that's the way I like it. If you want to drink a Guinness and be uh, upstairs in the attic, uh, popping pills, that's fine. That will suit you. That's that's great. Doesn't suit me. I always say to any author, do what suits you. Mary can write for five hours without stopping. I can't. That's amazing. So about forty-six days to do a book. The of first about- draft. Okay. So uh, fourteen drafts in all. Long, fourteen drafts. I would say a thousand hours a year. No, it's only the first draft for three hundred and fifty hours. I wish I could hand it in at the first draft, but after that, I go back again and again and again, honing, honing, cutting, cutting, sharper, sharper, wanting you to turn the page. It's uh, if there was a shortcut, I'd take it. There isn't one. Your titles are always great. Mightier than the sword, being this new one. How do you come up with the titles? Uh, titles are weird. A lot of people are kind enough to say uh, that the title... But I, they, they can come way ahead of a book. They can come during a book. They can come even when you've handed it in. Cain and Abel came on the embankment. It was called The Protagonists before it was called Cain and Abel. And I was walking along the embankment. Ah! 
that jumped in the air, got it, Cain and Abel. It meant a rewrite because everybody's name had to be changed to Cain or to Abel. It meant a complete rewrite, not a big deal, but it, it took, but when it was the protagonists, one was Polish, one was American, but different names. And so that when the title came, that had needed a rewrite. So titles can come, they might come, I might get in the car now and get a title for the next book. I might not get it for a year. But they make it sell, don't they? Surely. I think the title is important. I've had a lot of comments from other authors about the first of the Clifton Chronicles, Only Time Will Tell. A lot of authors have said, wow, that's a title I wish I had for one of my books. And I, I can't honestly remember when Only Time Will Tell came into the mind. Sometimes it comes in the book. While you're writing a sentence, you write Only Time Will Tell, and you think, oh, that's the title. Silly, silly, that's the title. And you grab it. And I remember uh, a set of short stories um, I wrote uh, to cut a long story short was at a hairdresser. This girl was nattering on. She said, well, Jeff, to cut a long story short, stop. I said, that's it. That's my next title for my next set of short stories. Now, as I was saying, she said. You're listening to 20 Questions with Jeffrey Archer. Let's go back, Jeffrey. Question number 14. If you met the 18-year-old Jeffrey Archer... What would you think and what would you say? Well, I would say, for God's sake, slow down. For God's sake, don't think everybody thinks uh, what you're doing is right. Or, you know, I was terribly uh, energetic, bumptious and jumping around. And like I was, uh, I was called Jumping Bean at school. That was my nickname. One of my nicknames was Jumping Bean. And I don't regret that. I mean, energy is very important. Uh, you need energy if you're going to succeed. But I wish I hadn't believed I would succeed at everything and do everything properly. And uh, I've made so many mistakes in my life. But I've had a wonderful life and I'm not complaining. So I'd say to the new 18-year-old, cool it a bit, Jeff. <laughs> 15. What's the best thing about being older and wiser? Nothing. I can't think of anything that has a joy. I mean, I... <sighs> I'd I'd sort of like to, I wish, if I could get a chance to speak to our Lord, and I think it's not likely to happen, I would say to him, can we please all go to 70 and then start going back down again and then die, or even 60, then you get 120 years, even 50, get 100 years, and you go up to 50, stop and go all the way back down again, and then with all the experience you've got up to 50, you take advantage of it on the way down, so that by the time you get to 20, you really can have a damn good time. So that's my criticism. No, I, there are very few joys. I mean, obviously, two lovely grandchildren. Uh, but basically, I sit and think, I wish I was 20 years younger. I'm not complaining. I'm having an amazing life. I've still got the energy. I'm still producing the books. But there isn't a lot of joy in being old. No. Here's number 16. Um, when were you starstruck? Have you ever been starstruck? Possibly the Sinatra meeting? Do you know, I would say having met Elvis Presley, having met Frank Sinatra, having met Muhammad Ali, when he was Muhammad Ali, when he was Cassius Clay and not Muhammad Ali, I don't think I was ever starstruck until I met Mandela. I did feel with him I was in the presence of a giant. I did feel with him, I did admire so much the fact that when he came out of jail, he didn't stand in that cauldron of a stadium and say... Kill every white man you see, which he, God knows, he might well have thought. But instead, he said, we must now live in peace together. We must govern this country with the people who live here. We must behave like... so. Oh, what, a, what an amazing man. 
So he very kindly invited me to have lunch with him at the uh, the embassy here in London. And I think, yes, I was tongue-tied and starstruck. Can I just ask you about something very personal now? And you suffered prostate cancer. Yes, indeed. Tell me about that. You should go and be tested. My testing, I got to 6.2. And my wife, of course, who was running then, running uh, Addenbrooke's Hospital, which had amazing hospital said uh, this is not you must be checked so i did all the check and they said if it gets out of the colon area you will die so i had the full operation i had the whole lot out uh, and i had a lovely note from my surgeon saying dear jeffrey you may die in the next 10 years but it ain't going to be cancer uh, because he saved me from that so i would say to all people between 50 and 70 listening to this program if you haven't been tested go and be tested 70% of you will be cleared. Another 10 to 20% will be told, don't need you at the moment. But don't die because you haven't been tested, idiots. And this is particularly to black people. Black people are more prone to prostate cancer than white people. So black people listening to this program, if you're over 50, go and be tested. That is my message. I've done it. It wasn't a pleasant operation. Lasted four and a half hours. I had two very unpleasant weeks. I was back to normal in the third week. So it's not a lot to make a fuss about. So that any men listening to this program, do the sensible thing. I want you to live. We've been told. Here's question number 17 to Geoffrey Archer. It's a complete day off just to yourself. Will you read a book? Will you watch a film? What will you do? You're not working. It's just a Well, I get up day. and read in the morning. I do from six to eight. Um, Who do you read? Pretty well every morning. Uh, well, I was reading a classic this morning. I've started going back and doing them all again. And, of course, they're classics because they're classics. Uh, and so the last three years I've been reading almost anything uh, that falls into that category. And I was doing The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier this morning, which is just a wonderful story. I think she's a fine, fine storyteller. I'd like a light breakfast. I'd then like to go to cricket. I'd like to see England play Australia uh, at Lords. I'd like to have a decent seat so I can see it properly. Uh, after cricket, that would end at six. I would uh, then want to go to the theatre. If I had a choice above anything on earth, I'd want to see something at the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, a great I've seen over the last 40 years I suppose I've seen 200 of the great performances as hardly I've seen Olivier right through to the modern day uh, Gilgood Guinness Redgrave Richardson right through to the day and I'd like a quiet dinner of uh, shepherd's pie uh, in somewhere like Rules which is an old traditional English restaurant and then I'd be quite happy to die <laughs> Is number 18. If you could live a year of your life again, Geoffrey, which year would that be? I think it would be um, the last year at Oxford when I ran for Oxford and for Britain and got married and <laughs> did all of that. In, Big year. And it was, that was probably the biggest year of my life in that sense. That, uh, but you don't realise it, of course, until you reach – I'm now 74. You don't realise it until you reach this age. Those were great moments. You kind of take them for granted or you – kind of think that's part of the deal and you don't know you're going to die because of course you're not going to die that's 50 60 years away how can you possibly know that that doesn't come into your reckoning until 
considerably later. So most of us, I suspect, look back and say, wow, I didn't realize what a good time that was or how lucky I was or how privileged I was. I, I'm aware now in old age that uh, how, what a privileged and lucky life I've had. I'm very aware of it because I see what I read every day in the paper of people dying of tragic diseases at a young age and think, wow, Jeffrey, you've been lucky. That could have been you. And some of them, nothing to do with the human being in the sense that they got it, they die, and there's nothing they, nothing uh, the best doctor on earth could have done to save them. Well, then you think, wow, I am lucky. Penultimate question, number 19. What does the future hold for Geoffrey Archer? Well, it seems unlikely that I will captain the England cricket team, which has been my lifelong desire. Uh, that I've been a total failure. <laughs> uh, the Clifton Chronicles have been such fun. Uh, number six and number seven still have to be written. Uh, so that's a challenge in itself. I've decided to read, write a set of short stories immediately after the Clifton Chronicles. But I'll then be 78, Rob, so I think you'll have to ask me again then. Though what I'm surprised by, and I've reached that stage in my life where I read the obituaries to see how old the people are when they die. And this morning it was 94, 79 and 78. But it's been... Averaging around 82, 83. So I think, I hope, I hope, I hope I've got a few more years yet because I've got a lot to do. Last question, number 20. What's your motto? I think I believe uh, above all things in loyalty. Uh, that's why I think I'm so privileged in having so many friends. been married for 49 years and I have so many friends passionate about uh, friendship and loyalty and... Uh, I think if you're lucky enough to go through life with friends, you're very lucky indeed. I feel sorry for people who are either cynical or belittlers or spend their life being unpleasant, and there are a lot of them around. I find that very sad indeed. Give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, Do the best you can, and if you fail, stand up and say, I failed, I'm not, not really good enough. I've had a lot of failures, and one or two successes and I've had a very wonderful life and I'm a wonderful wife and a wonderful family. I'm a very lucky person. Geoffrey Archer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Rob. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.